Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey pilots, it's Nick. Sorry for interrupting. We'll get to the lesson here in a little bit, but I really, really think you'll want to hear this. We're introducing a brand new scholarship. It's going to be annual thing that we're going to combine with one of our $1,000 scholarships in the spring. So if you've been following us, you know that I do four $1,000 scholarships to members of our online ground school. You have to be in the online ground school and we do four $1,000 scholarships a year out of my own pocket. Now what I'm going to do is the one in the spring around springtime, I'm going to combine that with a crowdsource GoFundMe scholarship. So basically if you're in the online ground school and you apply to the scholarship, our $1,000 scholarship, you're already eligible for this one. But if you're not in the online ground school and you want to have a chance to get a scholarship, all you have to do is you have to donate $10 to the GoFundMe for the scholarship, just $10. That's all you have to do. And then you have to fill out a small application. I'll put both those links in the show notes. And I've wanted to do something like this since I very started my first Instagram and Facebook helping student pilots. And I now finally have the platform of over 11,000 followers to be able to do that. So think about it. If we get 2,000 of just, just 2,000 of the 11,000 followers to sign up to do $10, right? That's $20,000 that we can give away in scholarships. And here's the really cool part. I'm not going to take any of the money. I'm going to promote it for a month beforehand, all for free, and I'm going to give it all away. The only thing that's taken out is like 3% fee from GoFundMe, but I can't help that. So it's all going to go. And again, I'm going to combine it with one of our $1,000 scholarships. So I'll start it off with the first thousand dollar donation and then to apply you either have to be in the online ground school or you have to donate ten dollars and let's see how high we can get that up it's going to be the same deadline as the next thousand dollar scholarship which is may 14th all right thank you for listening again check the links out in the show notes Hey, what's going on, pilots? This is Nick from Part-Time Pilot, your host of the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School podcast. Thank you for listening and continuing on this journey as we go through all the lessons in audio verbal format for you from our online ground school, all completely for free. I have a couple announcements before we get into the episodes are the lessons today, but we are going to be moving on in the online ground school to section eight on limitations and more regulations. We wanted to cover some fundamental things first so that you can sort of understand these regulations. And if you learn all these regulations all at once, it gets pretty boring. So I kind of wanted to space them out uh, so that we can get some more interesting content in there here and there. So that's as for the announcements, as of today, this episode being released, I believe it will be released on May 8th. 
Our deadline for 10th ever part-time pilot $1,000 scholarship is May 14th. So you have less than a week to apply. Again, to apply, you have to be in the online ground school. We give $1,000 to first place and then the runner-up is gets free ground school. And then we might, even if I like another application, might give someone something else. You know, you never know. So we do these about four times a year. So even if you get in the ground school, you fill out the application and you don't win this one, in a few months, we will have another opportunity. And in a few months after that, another opportunity. So there's plenty of opportunities for that $1,000 scholarship, trying to help as many people as possible rather than doing like one yearly larger scholarship, trying to, you know, look for people who need that little bit of boost. $1,000 is like about four flight lessons or so. And so give that little bit of boost that, that you might need to, to get over a hump in your training. So that's what it's for. It's May 14th to apply. You got to sign up. You got to be in our ground school. And then in your welcome email, there will be a link to a short application. Or you can go to your dashboard and go to my memberships and then click on your membership, whether it's the online ground school or the bundle membership. And the link is in the description in there. All right. So get those applications in. Again, the deadline is May 14th. The other thing I wanted to sort of announce is if you're going to Oshkosh and you signed up for our sort of Oshkosh team where you can get a t-shirt, make some money at Oshkosh, we have started to send out some informational emails about that and your t-shirts coming soon. So if you're not getting those emails, please let us know. Email us at team at parttimepilot.com if you haven't gotten any emails about sort of the Oshkosh information, any information on your t-shirt, how to sign up and all that stuff. So if you haven't got any of those emails, we've been sending them for a couple weeks now, about one every two weeks to give you some information and keep in contact with you guys. So if you haven't got those and you signed up for that wait list and for that program, then let us know. Shoot us an email again at team at parttimepilot.com. Okay. And the last thing I want to talk about is I watched a really cool documentary last night. And I just wanted to share it with you guys because it blew my friggin' mind. So I'm always a sucker for really cool like science and nature documentaries. I'm a big geek for that sort of stuff. And if you're into, you know, flying, piloting, space, stuff like that, then I think you really might like this too. You know, there's a lot of NASA missions I talked about more in the mainstream than others, obviously, you know, the moon landing, and then you got, you know, the rovers on Mars, and the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and then maybe like the Voyager missions that have gone the furthest of any man-made object. But this one is about the Cassini mission, and it went to Saturn. And I remember hearing about the Cassini mission. It's something that it takes so long to get there that it's like 20 years in the making. So these people that, that started the program working at NASA, like 20 years later, they had to wait for all this information to come back and this data. And this documentary is about the things that they found out about Saturn. And holy cow, you guys, it's just, I love space so much. It's so cool. Just every single you know month, year, we're just learning new stuff about space. It's just so, I don't know, it's so cool. It really gets me going. And this thing totally destroyed everything we thought about like where the best place to to search for life might be, you know, we thought obviously it's outside of our planet, our own solar system. But now they're after this mission, they're thinking that Saturn, you know, this is kind of the mission that thought, hey, maybe the moons of Saturn might have something that could sustain life. And just the things they found are just absolutely crazy. So really, really cool documentary. It's on Amazon Prime Video, I think, or PBS. It's one of those Nova documentaries that PBS, I think PBS makes it. Nova, they do the Nova series. 
It's super cool. It's called Death Dive to Saturn. It's about the Cassini, NASA Cassini mission. So if you haven't ever watched that, and if you're a geek like me in space, go check that out. I think it's it's a really fun watch. So anyways, just wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, I thought it was really cool, so I wanted to share. And so that is enough announcements and me sharing things I watched. So let's get to those lessons. Okay, so in our last episode, we finished section seven on fundamentals of aerodynamics. We finished up on density altitude. So if you missed that one, that is a really good one. Density altitude is a is a concept that you sort of need to know all the things of the fundamentals of aerodynamics to be able to fully understand. So that's why we put it at the end and it kind of ties it all together in your training nicely in a bow. So go check that out if you have not. It's an important topic that you'll definitely get asked about on your exams. Now, if you're following along in the online ground school, again, if you're not, I highly recommend it. We're now on section eight which is limitations and more regulations. And again, I mentioned I kind of put these here because some of the things I wanted you to learn first so that these would make sense of why these rules and regulations are the way they are. And then some of these are just input here because I didn't want to get, you know, give you a fire hose of rules and regulations at the beginning because that can get a little boring and monotonous. So anyways, that's why it's here. So limitations and more regulations. Section eight, lesson one is going to be on aircraft speeds and lesson two is going to be on speed limits. And I think we're going to cover both of those today so let's get to it on lesson one aircraft speeds you may have seen speeds used in this course aircraft speeds in terms of the units and kias kias stands for knots indicated airspeed or and knots is short for like a nautical mile per hour essentially so knots indicated airspeed is nautical miles per hour of indicated airspeed all aircraft speeds are in terms of knots or nautical miles per hour but there are different speeds that have completely different meanings to a pilot those speeds consist of the following indicated airspeed indicated airspeed is just as it sounds it is what is indicated by the airspeed indicator in the aircraft. In order to understand it fully, we need to understand how the airspeed indicator gets this value. The airspeed indicator uses the pitot-static system to indicate an airspeed. It does this by finding the difference between the static pressure of the air and the stagnation pressure due to ram air. The static pressure port is on the back of the pitot probe taking a measurement of non-moving static air. Pitot pressure port is in front of the probe and measures the moving free stream or ram air. The difference between these two pressures is called the impact or dynamic pressure and can be used to calculate the speed of an aircraft. We talked about this way back when in the episode on airspeed indicators and how they worked under our section on aircraft systems. Now, you don't need to know the mathematics behind the calculation of indicated airspeed, but it is good to know you know what inputs it uses right that's you know that static and ram pressures and giving you that dynamic pressure to calculate airspeed because you know if your airspeed indicator isn't working correctly and it seems a little funky it may be an issue with either your static port or your pitot probe your pitot ram pressure probe so it's good to know where these sources come from you don't need to know exactly how to calculate it though Another thing you do need to know is that it assumes a standard temperature, these calculations in our airspeed indicator. So our airspeed indicator takes, you know, those two pressures, it finds the difference, and it just converts that into a speed. 
But the temperature of the air, as we know from our density altitude lesson, changes the density. And so when the density is different, that'll change the amount of pressure that your pitot probe is sensing, and that difference in pressure will be different. But your airspeed indicator doesn't know this. The airspeed indicator isn't saying, okay, it's warmer outside, so let's adjust because it's gonna be less dense, so let's adjust our little equation here and give the accurate airspeed. It's not doing that, it just assumes a standard temperature. Therefore, when temperatures are much higher or lower than standard, indicated airspeed is not a reliable number when planning flight. Still reliable for using our aircraft and flying our aircraft you know it's still you know that's what we have but when we want to plan flights accurately and know like how quickly we're going to move through the air and timing and things like that can fall apart if we aren't using the correct airspeed and we'll get to what we use instead here in a little bit but this is just indicated airspeed right now the operating limitations which is the o of arrow if you remember in our you know required documentation you had you know operating limitations had to be one of the required documents or placards that you had in your aircraft. That includes aircraft speeds. While most of the speeds can be found along the arcs of the airspeed indicator, some have to be found in the POH, the Pilot Operating Handbook, or on placards on the aircraft. And we're gonna cover some of these indicated airspeeds that either are mentioned in your POH or are on the airspeed indicator themselves by different symbols and colors and markings. So we're gonna cover that, what they mean, how to read them from the airspeed in indicator, and all that jazz. So. These are the important ones to know, and so let's get to it. The first one is V, and then in small little letters, subscript NE. So VNE, that stands for never exceeds speed. So this speed, and th these are also called V speeds. These are like a grouping of V speeds are all like V for stands for velocity. It'll be a V and then a subscript. And so this VNE is the never exceed V speed. This speed is represented by a red line on your airspeed indicator. So it's it's basically the end of your airspeed indicator, not the very end, but there will be a red line, and this is basically, you know, you're redlining it. You're, you're, you're at the end of your operating limitation. That's your never exceeds speed. And it sounds just like, just like it is, right? Don't exceed this speed. The aircraft control surfaces and engine are not designed to handle speeds above this level. The Whoever created the aircraft is saying, please do not push the aircraft past these limits because we did not design it for it and it can be very very unsafe situation for a cherokee warrior that's a pa 28-161 this number is usually around 160 knots indicated airspeed the next v speed i want to talk about is vno so v subscript no and that's the maximum structural cruising speed not sure where they got the no from maybe someone out there listening might know that and they could email us uh, team at parttimepilot.com. That would be a cool fun fact to know and share with our audience. But VNO is maximum structural cruising speed. This speed is represented by the end of the green arc and the beginning of the yellow arc on your airspeed indicator. You can cruise up to this speed well, that's like that means like straight and level flight, but the aircraft was not designed to maneuver or fly through heavy turbulence at speeds above VNO. So this is your manufacturer saying basically the surfaces, the structures can handle of your aircraft can handle loads up until this speed. So basically you just want to cruise above these speeds. So cruising, you know, the, the loads are limited when you start turning, climbing, descending, or getting into turbulence where you're quickly, you know, cruising, climbing, descending, you're bouncing up and down. Those added stresses and loads from those different quick accelerations, the aircraft is not designed to withstand those at speeds above VNO. 
So maneuvering in turbulence causes, again, I'm just gonna kind of repeat this, causes excess loads on the wings of the aircraft, which at the maximum structural cruising speed can be too much and cause damage to the aircraft. The amount of excess load that can be imposed on the wing of an airplane depends upon the speed of the airplane. And thus designers come up with VNO to instruct users and pilots to remain safely below during turbulent conditions. So again, that those loads depend on that speed. So these manufacturers say, okay, at this speed, these loads will increase so much that we can no longer withstand them. So do not cru uh, only cruise past this speed. And that's VNO. For Cherokee Warrior, this speed is usually 126 knots. So that's similar to like a Cessna, Cessna 172. The next one is VA or V subscript A, and that's a design maneuvering speed. This is the maximum speed at which a single flight control can be moved one time to its full deflection without risk of damage to the aircraft. This number depends on the aircraft's weight and is therefore not marked on the airspeed indicator. So you're not going to see it marked on the airspeed indicator because the airspeed indicator doesn't know what the weight of your aircraft is right? So if you have a bunch of passengers in there, it's not going to account for that. So that's why they don't put it on there. POH will usually give it to you in a high weight case and a low weight case. So you can extrapolate between the two. For example, the Cherokee Warrior, the number is usually 111 knots indicated airspeed at 2,325 pounds and then 88 knots at 1,531 pounds. So again, this is the design maneuvering speed, which when flying below the design maneuvering speed or VA, it guarantees that you will stall the aircraft before you exceed the designed load factor and damage the aircraft. A couple things to remember on this one, basically that it depends on weight. So your aircraft is probably going to give you either a table of different speeds at different weights or maybe a high and a low case like I did for the example of the Cherokee Warrior. And then this is the maximum speed at which a single flight control can be moved one time to its full deflection without risk of damage to the aircraft. So full deflection, right? That's going to be, you know, the highest amount of, of maneuvering that your aircraft can do. At least that's what you're going to be trying to do. So this is sort of the, the maximum maneuvering speed or the design maneuvering speed. So, and what it does is it guarantees that you will stall the aircraft before you exceed the design load factor and damage the aircraft. So if you fly below it, if you go to full deflection, if you're flying below VA and you go to full deflection, you might stall, but you're not going to damage the aircraft. If you fly above it and you go to full deflection, there's risk that you can damage your aircraft. So you want to be wary of VA when you want to start maneuvers, particularly if you're making full deflection maneuvers. Okay, the next one is VFE. So V subscript FE. This is the maximum flaps extended speed. So that this one's easy, FE flaps extended. This speed is represented by the end of the white arc the part of the arc on your airspeed indicator that is white. The flaps are not designed to handle the loads beyond this speed, so do not extend flaps unless you are below the speed. Again, for the Cherokee Warrior, this number is usually 103 knots or so. The next one is VX. This is the best angle of climb speed. We have another one like this called the best rate of climb speed, which we'll get to in a second, and then I'll tell you a little bit how I remember the difference. So VX, the best angle of climb speed. In order to understand the best angle of climb and best rate of climb speeds, it's easiest to think of two separate aircraft that have the same exact performance and are taking off at the same exact time on side-by-side runways and both climbing to an altitude of 2,000 feet above ground level. The aircraft flying the best angle of climb speed will reach the altitude of 2,000 feet in the shortest ground track. It's a more vertical or straight up climb. So the short amount of distance over the ground, the aircraft flying best angle of climb will reach the altitude in the, the 
smallest distance on the ground. For a Cherokee warrior, this is usually about 63 knots indicated. VY is the best rate of climb. So this is the other aircraft. So the aircraft flying the best rate of climb will reach the altitude in the shortest amount of time. And this is a more diagonal climb. Because the best angle of climb, you might be flying slower, right? So you might not get to that altitude in the quickest amount of time, the best angle, but you will get there in the least amount of distance. So you can see there might be different scenarios when you want to use one rather than the other. Usually when you don't have any obstacles to, to climb over and you're not worried about, about any train or anything, pilots use VY. That's kind of the general takeoff speed unless you have obstacles. You, you take off and maintain VY, which again for a Cherokee Warrior is about 79 knots. That's the best rate of climb speed because you just want to get up to altitude and cruising where it's more efficient as quickly as possible in terms of time. So that's why the best rate of climb speed, you want to have the best rate of climb. And that again, for Cherokee Warrior, about 79 knots, the best angle of climb you would use when you need to get up quickly in a short amount of distance. So if you have an obstacle, right, that is a mile off the runway and you need to clear that 2000 feet, let's say you have 1500 feet terrain a mile ahead of the, the runway, then you might want to use the best angle of climb speed so that you can get to that altitude earlier in terms of distance. It might take you longer in terms of time, but you don't care about time in this situation because you just want to make sure you're clear of that terrain and of that obstruction. Okay, so the next one is going to be VS1, and that is the no flap stall speed. So there's two stall speed. There's VS1 and there's VS0. VS1 is the no flap stall speed. So this speed is represented by the beginning of the green arc on your airspeed indicator. Flaps allow your wings to create more lift and allow you to fly at slower speeds. Without flaps, the speed at which your aircraft will stall is higher than what it would be with flaps. So for a Cherokee Warrior, VS1 is about 50 knots indicated airspeed. VS0, on the other hand, is full flap stall speed. This speed is represented by the beginning of the white arc on your airspeed indicator. Flaps, again, allow your wings to create more lift and allow you to fly at slower speeds. With flaps, as in VS0 in this situation, the speed at which your aircraft will stall is lower than what it would be without flaps. So the stall speed of VS0 here, the full flap stall speed, is 44 knots for a Cherokee Warrior, whereas the no flap stall speed is 50 knots. So if you don't have any flaps deployed, your stall speed is usually going to be about 50 knots. Again, the stall speed can change in given scenarios, right? It, obviously, we see that it's changing with the configuration of your flaps. And we talked about the stall speed and how that changes with loads and all that stuff, load factors and, and things like that, weight of the aircraft. So this, these numbers I'm telling you, I'm just saying, I say usually, these are sort of like the general stall speeds, right? I'm using these numbers as an example to show you the difference. So again, the no flap stall speed, you don't have any flaps. That's gonna be for Cherokee Warrior around 50 knots. And then when you deploy full flaps, that's gonna go down because your flaps allow you to fly at slower speeds without stalling. So that'll go down to about 44 knots for a Cherokee Warrior. And again, this is about, obviously, if you're turning or you have a load factor or something on the aircraft that is going to that number is going to change and you can go back to the load factor episode if you want to learn more about that to remember vs1 and vs0 you can think of vs1 where the one is an i which stands for in and refers to the flaps and landing gear in and not deflected then vs0 where the zero is an o stands for out and refers to the flaps and landing gear out and deflected so some aircraft have landing gear some don't so usually the landing configuration where you would have vs0 or out you have flaps out and you have landing gear out that's the landing configuration so that's kind of why they're grouped together 
together. So when they're out, you have the flaps down, you have the gear down, that's gonna be VS0. When they're in, you have the flaps tucked in, they're not deployed, and you have the gear in, so you're not in the landing configuration, so that would be VS1, your no flap stalls. Okay, so in here in the lesson, we have a picture of the airspeed indicator. We show the dial of the airspeed indicator starting at around 40 knots or so, and we have VS0, and that's shown at the bottom of the white arc on the dial, and then you continue along the dial going around clockwise around this dial, and you get to the start of the green arc, which is VS1, so that's going to be your no flap stall speed. And then you continue along a little bit, and you can see the entire white arc, and that entire white arc is a flap operating range, because at the end of that white arc is gonna be VFE, which is the maximum flaps extended speed. So we don't wanna fly past that speed with flaps extended, so that's VFE at the end of the white arc. The green arc continues on around our clock, and then we get to, uh, and again, this is based off like a Cherokee Warrior, we get to a little bit above 100 knots, and that's gonna be the normal, or sorry, the green, the whole green arc is the normal operating range. So that goes from about like 45 or 50 knots to about 130 knots or so. So that's the normal operating range. That's the green area. And you might get asked this on, on your FA written exam. What is the normal operating range? That's the green arc on your aircraft. The flap operating range is the white arc. The green operating range is, green arc is the normal operating range. Then we have at the end of the green arc, before it gets to a yellow arc, is VNO, right? And what was VNO? If you remember, that's the second speed we talked about. That's the maximum structural cruising speed. Again, this is the speed that you can cruise up to the speed, straight and level five, but the aircraft was not designed to maneuver or fly through heavy turbulence at speeds above that. So VNO, that's kind of the end of your normal operating range, the end of the green arc. Then the arc turns to yellow. The yellow arc is then the structural warning area. And at the end of the yellow arc is VNE. So between VNO, which is our maximum structural cruising speed, and VNE is the yellow arc, which is our structural warning area. And then VNE is represented by a red line. And again, for Cherokee Warrior, that's about around 160 knots. So, all right, so that is the airspeed indicator. Uh, go ahead and check it out, that image in the lesson, so you can get a good understanding of what your airspeed indicator looks like. You're gonna be, need to be very aware of this when you're flying. Okay, next up, those are all indicated airspeeds, right? They're indicated on your airspeed indicator. And so we said that there's multiple airspeeds and the indicated airspeed, you know, it comes from your pitot probe and it assumes standard temperature. So we might wanna use different speeds, different airspeeds when we plan our flights. So again, we can account for that, that non-standard temperature and make sure that we're getting where we wanna be, when we wanna get there, and we're planning our flights out accordingly. So there's another speed called calibrated airspeed and usually you'll see this as CAS, calibrated airspeed. And this is indicated airspeed corrected for instrument errors and position errors due to incorrect pressure at the static port caused by airflow disruption. Now, what does that mean? So here we're not even talking about the non-standard temperature yet with calibrated airspeed. We're talking about errors in the instrumentation themselves. So in the pitot or static probe, you know, it's not collecting this ram air or this static air appropriately. And then maybe in the lines going to the airspeed indicator and the airspeed indicator themselves, there's some issues with 100% accurately calculating the airspeed. So usually pilots only care about indicator airspeed and true airspeed, which is the next airspeed we're gonna get to. But in order to get to true airspeed, you need to first know the calibrated airspeed because true airspeed incorporates the air corrections that we just mentioned. So so basically, when you calculate your cross-country flying, the end goal is ground speed is going to tell you distance and time. So you have to have a true airspeed. 
true airspeed cranks for non-standard temperature. And then to get to true airspeed, you have to have a calibrated airspeed, which corrects for these instrumentation errors. And then before that is, you know, with no none of these corrections is the indicated airspeed. So calibrated airspeed corrects for these instrument errors. And then you take calibrated airspeed, correct for non-standard temperature to get true airspeed, which you'll get to in a second. With many new aircraft and GPS systems, the true airspeed is able to be calculated for pilots and thus the importance of calibrated airspeed has diminished. However, calibrated airspeeds are still an important tool for aircraft manufacturers when determining V speeds of aircraft. And it's important that you as a pilot know this because you might be asked about it. You might be asked about it by the examiner. I don't think there's an FAA written question on it, but you need to know where, where these numbers are coming from. And you need to know that to get to your airspeed, you can't go straight from indicated to true. You need to go to calibrated but there is a big caveat for us private pilots that fly these slower aircraft. I know it's really cool, but in terms of all the aircraft in the world, they're pretty slow. So for the purposes of planning a cross-country flight with predetermined airspeed, student pilots may assume the indicated airspeed is equal to calibrated airspeed. Check with your instructor to make sure that they are okay with this assumption. The difference gets larger as you increase airspeed and the POH AFM of your aircraft will provide a conversion chart from indicated to calibrated airspeed. So even in our slow aircraft, you're going to find in the POH AFM a conversion chart. So go ahead and take a look at that. And you're going to see at the airspeeds that you fly at, at about 100 knots or so, that air, the difference between indicated and calibrated airspeed is pretty small. I think it's around 1% to 2%. So most instructors are okay with you just neglecting that, ignoring it, and just saying that indicated airspeed is the same as calibrated airspeed for the airspeeds that we fly in. But when you get to higher airspeeds, 200 knots, 300 knots, right? that air is going to get bigger and bigger. So you cannot just neglect it. You have to calculate a calibrated airspeed, get rid of those airs from the indicated airspeed. So, but for our purposes as a private pilot, again, make sure it's okay with your instructor when you're doing your cross-country flight planning. But most of the time we can assume indicated airspeed is the same as calibrated airspeed. All right. So now we've already mentioned true airspeed several times and we even mentioned ground speed. So we kind of went ahead a little bit, but let's go on now and talk about true airspeed. True airspeed again is calibrated airspeed corrected for altitude and non-standard temperature. In other words, it corrects for the change in air density as altitude and temperature changes. This is the true speed of the aircraft in the air mass in which it is flying through. I don't know if you guys hear that aircraft, but way back in our starting episodes, sorry to, to stop the lesson, we talked about how I record a lot of these close to San Diego International Airport and right near the approach path. So that aircraft just did a go around. It was a 737 Southwest Airlines just did a go around because it's actually really stormy here in San Diego. So it's very kind of bogged in, fogged in and, and windy in different directions. And that aircraft just did a go around. And so it was a lot louder than the other ones because because they went full power to climb out and do the go around. So just a, just a, you know, it doesn't happen too often with these big jets, but you know, pilot, the safe thing to do is to always do a go around. So good on that pilot. The uh, passengers are probably like, what the hell? Why can't I just land already? I got it. But, but it was a safe and good thing for the pilot to do. All right. Anyways, back to true airspeed. So again, this is the true speed of the aircraft in the air mass in which it is flying, right? It, it corrects. It's essentially correcting for air density. Air density changes with altitude and temperature. So this is adjusting for that and giving 
giving you a true speed through the, the medium of air that you're flying through. When at sea level and flying in low speeds where air compressibility is negligible, indicated airspeed can be assumed to be the same as true airspeed. But when the density of the air or temperature around the aircraft differs from standard sea level conditions, indicated airspeed no longer matches true airspeed and no longer accurately reflects aircraft performance. So again, true airspeed is calibrated airspeed corrected for altitude and non-standard temperatures. If the temperature increases or the altitude increases causing a decrease in air density, the indicated airspeed will measure less than the true airspeed. For this reason, true airspeed can't be measured directly, but instead has to be calculated. We will get to in our cross-country planning how exactly to calculate that, but right now we're just learning what this airspeed is so that in the future when we get to that you'll know what it is and then we can show you how to calculate it. All right, the next speed I want to talk about is ground speed. Ground speed is true airspeed corrected for wind. All right, so although true airspeed tells us our true speed flying through the medium of air or the mass of air that we're flying through, it doesn't tell us how quickly we travel a specific distance over the ground. Now, that speed at which we travel a distance over the ground can be vastly affected by the winds. And true airspeed doesn't take that into effect because it tells us the true airspeed in the air mass that we're flying in. But if that air mass is moving towards us, aka we have a big headwind, true airspeed does not account for that. It just, you know, notices the air molecules and the density of the air, right? So it's it's not recognizing that we're getting pulled back by a strong heavy wind and it's harder to fly through that headwind, right? Or if we have a tailwind, it's, it's helping us. We're riding the wind in this situation. True airspeed does not account for that. So when we flight plan and we want to know, okay, how long is it going to take us to fly 100 nautical miles? We need to know a ground speed that takes into effect the wind. So again, ground speed is true airspeed correct for what man all these aircraft are, are doing go rounds i wonder if maybe something's going on on the runway anyways ground air speed is true airspeed corrected for wind if you are traveling through an air mass that has a 10 knot headwind into your face at a true airspeed of 150 knots your ground speed or speed in relation to the ground will only be 150 minus 10 or 140 knots and that is that's not a an estimation calculation that is a true calculation if you have a true headwind like a direct headwind you can literally just subtract the velocity of the wind, the speed of the wind from your true airspeed to get your ground speed. So in this case, we have a direct 10 knot headwind. We're trying, we're flying a true airspeed of 150 knots. So our ground speed is 150 minus 10 or 140 knots. If that wind were a tailwind, then your ground speed would be 150 plus 10 because it's aiding you. It's pushing you from behind. So 150 plus 10 would be 160 knots. And when you get up to high altitudes in these, I don't know if you've ever flown somewhere and usually it takes you about two and a half hours and you get there and like, less than two hours and you're wondering like what the heck did the pilot use the rocket boosters or something and <laughs> no that's not the case usually what you had was a a strong tailwinds because up there those winds can get up to you know 100 miles per hour or more so if you get a really good tailwind you can really get somewhere quickly so ground speed can be found from a gps or a dme and is useful in flight planning because this is the speed that tells you how long it will take to cover a certain distance over the ground if you are traveling a course of 100 nautical miles at a ground speed of 120 knots then you will be able to calculate the time it takes to travel this distance by knowing that velocity is equal to distance over time so ground 
mile speed is simply just the distance you traveled divided by the time you traveled that distance. And if you rearrange that equation, you can either solve for time or distance. If you know the ground speed and you know the distance, you can find the time. Time would just be equal to distance over ground speed. So in that example, where we have you know a distance of 100 nautical miles and ground speed of 120 knots, if we just do 100 divided by 120, that gives us about 0.83 hours. So now we know the time it's going to take when we know our ground speed. So that's basically what we're doing in flight training, right? We're getting a true airspeed and then we're factoring in the forecasted wind. So we get a ground speed and then we plotted our course and the distances between each checkpoint. And so we know, okay, if we're flying a ground speed of 120 knots, we're flying 100 nautical miles, 100 divided by 120, that's going to be 0.83 hours. That's how long it should take us. If those wind conditions, you know, match at the time of our flight, that's how long it should take us to reach that checkpoint. So why is that? I mean, this is all about pilotage and dead reckoning. Again, we'll talk about that in cross-country planning. But the reason why that's important is because if you are trying to find your checkpoint and you can't find it, you'll, you'll want to check your time, right? And if it's point eight, three hours, which is about, I don't know, like 50 minutes or so. If it's been an hour and 20 minutes, then you know that, well, I should have already been to my checkpoint a long time ago because the wind is not that different from what I planned. And it gives you more data to know whether you are near your checkpoint, you should be seeing it soon, or if you might be lost. Of course, we have tools like VORs, tell where we are, or GPS, which is much, much easier <laughs> than all of that. So of course we have those things, but we as pilots have to prepare for the worst. So if you don't have those things, pilotage and dead reckoning, like they used to do way back when, I like to think of it as the zombie apocalypse, strategy. You know, if everything shuts down, we still be able to navigate around. And that's what this ground speed time equation is all about when it comes to flight planning. That's ground speed. Once again, ground speed determines how fast you cover ground and tells you how long it will take you to travel a certain distance on the map. We talked about true airspeed. We talked about calibrated airspeed. And then we talked about indicated airspeed and we mentioned all the indicated airspeeds that you're going to see on your airspeed indicator. All right, guys, hopefully you guys understood all that. If not, you can always reach out to us the next lesson is on speed limits. It's a bit of a quicker lesson, but I do want to get to that because it ties in things nicely. So let's go on to speed limits. But before we do, I just want to take a quick break and then we'll get back and we'll finish up on speed limits. Hey pilots, this is Nick again. Did you guys know that part-time pilot now has a private pilot test prep book that you can buy on Amazon. It's a physical book that you can buy on Amazon to help prep for your FAA written exam. So it's like the other test prep books out there, you know, the Jepson, Asa, or the Gleam, Glime, however you pronounce it. It's just like those, but I called ours the ultimate private pilot test prep because not only does it give you a synopsis of each subject, like the cliff notes, like those other books do, and then it gives you FAA written questions to practice and quiz yourself on to, to prep for the test, but it also goes much, much further, and that's why we call it the ultimate private pilot test prep book. So for each subject, it also has a QR code so that as you're reading it, 
if you want more information, you can scan the QR code on your phone or your tablet and it will immediately pull up a YouTube video that you can watch on the subject. There's also QR codes in there for additional downloads including FAA, PDFs, subject area checklists, and more PDFs from us that you can download for free. It also includes a coupon code and QR code where you can go enroll in online practice tests for free and receive the PDF version of the book completely free. All that is with simple, easy to use QR codes inside the book. And then we also, not only does it have the cliff notes of all the information, but it also includes mnemonic devices and visual aids, such as diagrams, tables, and images that are labeled, such as like a METAR that is labeled every single thing that is included and deciphered in the METAR or a TAF. Also the performance charts, step-by-step labeled steps on performance calculation charts. So it's not just cliff note bullet points, it's that plus much, much more, these visual aids, all in 404 pages in the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book, and it is only $37. So you can go check that out on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, so go check it out. Okay, welcome back, let's continue on. This is lesson two on speed limits from section eight, limitations and more regulations. So if you're following along in the online ground school, just go to your course, step one, online ground school, private pilot lessons, go down to section eight and lesson two on speed limits. All right, speed limits. Like the rules of the road, aircraft also have speed limits. While we have already discussed speed limits given by the aircraft manufacturer in terms of performance limits, there are also speed limits that depend on the area and altitude of flight. All of these speeds are indicated airspeeds in terms of nautical miles per hour or knots indicated airspeed. Now, before I list these, I want to say you as a private pilot, you know, flying that Cherokee Warrior or that Cessna 152, 172, you're not going to reach these sort of speeds. Okay, so it's not really something you worry about. It's not really something your examiner is going to ask you about on your check ride oral. Probably they could, but probably not. I think the FAA written might have one or two questions that you might get on these. So they still are required things that you need to know, unfortunately. <laughs> so that's why we cover them. But and then as you progress through your pilot training and you get into more higher performing aircraft, you will definitely need to have these down. So it's good to get them down now so that you can have them in your repertoire for later. All right. So again, they're all in knots indicated airspeed. Anywhere in the United States, the limit is Mach 1. So they don't want us breaking the sound barrier all over the place because I don't know if you can imagine you see people with their cars and their motorcycles driving through neighborhoods with making loud noises. Can you imagine if people had their own aircraft they could break the sound barrier what they would do. Oh, the limit is Mach 1. Below 10,000 feet MSL the speed limit is 250 knots indicated airspeed. So 250 when below 10,000 feet MSL. When you're in class Bravo airspace the speed limit is 250 knots. So even if you're above that 10,000 feet MSL but you're in class Bravo Bravo, the speed limit is 250 knots indicated. If you're in a VFR corridor, which goes through class Bravo airspace, the speed limit is 200 knots indicated. So sometimes there's these VFR corridors that allow VFR aircraft to fly through class Bravo airspace. And if you're in one of those, the speed limit is 200 knots. If you're underneath a class B or class Bravo airspace, the speed limit is 200 knots. If you're in class Delta airspace, the speed limit is 200 knots. When at or 
below 2,500 feet AGL within four nautical miles of the primary airport of class C or D airspace, class Charlie or Delta airspace, the speed limit is 200 knots. So basically you have Mach 1 in the United States, you have 250 knots if you're a below 10,000 feet MSL or you're in class B, you have 200 knots if you're in a VFR corridor through class B, if you're underneath class B, if you're in class D, or you're at or below 2,500 feet AGL and within four nautical miles of a primary airport of class C or D, then it's also 200 knots. Now we have a visual aid for this that shows sort of the, you know, the, the structure and, and shape of a class B and then the class C or D and it shows your aircraft and all that stuff. It's just a good visual depiction of what we just said. Good sort of mnemonic to remember. And then we also have the quiz in the lesson. So told you guys it would be a quick one. Thanks for hanging out and hanging around for that. So that ends that lesson on speed limits. And so in the next episode, we'll get to lesson three, which is going to be on seatbelts and harnesses. And I think we'll be able to do lesson four and five as well. Lesson four is going to be on right-of-way rules. And lesson five is going to be on minimum safe altitude rules. All right. So we will do that next week, next Monday. I believe it'll be May 15th. So that'll be the day after the scholarship deadline. So I don't know if we'll, we'll probably do a separate special podcast announcement. Or if you want to, you know, know if you want or not, I'll definitely be contacting you but we'll also announce on you know instagram facebook and through our email so get those applications in and i will see you guys next week hey guys it's nick i want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there you might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking 
with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight, things get a little more advanced. And when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts, you're gonna hit a wall. You're gonna start to get behind the aircraft. And when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices. Have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts 
the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.